Welcome back to the 65th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two stories about Social Security and how the system may fall apart, but they're trying to come up with some clever solutions. A story about the shrinking population of China and the adverse effects that will have on us here in America how it may push them to invade Taiwan a little bit earlier than they would like to. As well as our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. And normally this is the part where I say I'll stop rambling and we can jump to the daily debate, but I do have a special announcement. By the time that this podcast goes up, I should have most of the catalog available on every major platform besides YouTube. Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. So look out for that. All you should have to do is search Daily Flip Podcast and check it out there if you would rather get your podcast there than YouTube. With that said, let's jump into our daily debate. For years, if not decades, the conversation around Social Security has raged. The conversation never really leads anywhere, though. Politicians acknowledge there's a problem and then continue to not change anything. Sounds like a lot of political issues. But as 2035 quickly approaches, it once again made it into the conversation. But will anything actually change this time? Or will it continue to have to become a true crisis before both parties actually take action? Let's jump to our first article here from National Review. We will regret our missed opportunities to reform Social Security. Quote, John Thune of South Dakota, the second-ranking Republican in the U.S. Senate, has suggested that Congress take up the Social Security reform as part of its legislation to increase the federal debt limit, with Social Security's long-term funding gap now topping 20 million, oh, my bad, 20 trillion. There is no time like the present. No time, that is, except for the past. New data from the Congressional Budget Office suggests that Congress acted on Social Security reform two decades ago. The federal government's largest spending program could have been made solvent with only a modest impact on the incomes of the average retiree. End quote. So, hold on, we need to take a step back. You're telling me that taking preemptive action is better than responding to a problem that's imminent? So, you're telling me that not eating those extra five cakes and gaining those extra five pounds is easier and better than eating them and then having to work off those pounds? Wow, hmm, it's almost as if there's a lesson that we've known here as a society, as a human race, that we, we maybe could have implemented. Hmm, I'm, I'm very, very curious about that one. I'm going to have to do some very intense research about that and see if that's true. And obviously, you know I'm being sarcastic, and I'm sorry if I'm being overly sarcastic, but it's because of the political incentive structure that this sort of thing keeps happening. And we'll dive into this a little bit later. But politicians need a crisis. 
They need a crisis in order to act, and it's sad. And it's been happening for a long, long time. So the author takes us back to 2001, when the Bush administration put together a commission to, quote, strengthen Social Security, end quote. And honestly, I, I like the sound of that, strengthen Social Security, the SSS. Oh, hmm, maybe George Bush went a little wrong there. Uh, but I do like the alliteration that comes along with it. But they didn't actually solve anything when they put together this special commission. But there were some proposals that the author really wants to highlight, and one in particular that he very much enjoys. One was that Social Security benefits would be frozen and would not be adjusted for inflation each year. So while this would have a small change long-term, the effect would also be long-term. Basically, in 2001, they would have said, okay, you make 65, that's not the case, actually. Let's say you get 45000 from Social Security during a year. Instead of saying, okay, you get 45000 next year, adjusted for inflation. No, no, the rate stays what it is. You get 45000 in 2001 dollars, even next year. So as inflation goes up, technically, the seniors are receiving less money. And that does sound a little bit mean or not fair at first, but the author argues that those seniors would receive less funds when adjusted for inflation, they would not have to fear having a 20% reduction of benefits of Social Security if it fails. And also, what the author is trying to point out here is that they're still better off than when the Social Security crisis was trying to be addressed in the 60s, in the 70s, when there was a perception of your grandparents eating cat food and really struggling to get along. So I don't necessarily know if I agree with all of those points, but that's what the author's trying to highlight here. And I want to at least do his argument justice because he's not coming at this in a bad faith way. I just think there are a few things that we're not necessarily looking at. Because... I hear this argument, and it holds up until you think about what has happened over the last two years of rampant hyperinflation. If these seniors were forced to have a Social Security payment that is fixed, that is not inflation-adjusted, then they're losing 11%. Sorry, I take that back. Inflation is not that high. At this point, it's at 9%. Last year, it would have been somewhere around 6 So they're losing 6%, 9% buying power, meaning that they could have been what? Let's say that in 2019, they froze the benefits where they were. They were receiving 45000 I can't do the exact math off my, the top of my head, but over the two years, that's 15%. We can do 10% of 45, 4500 and then half of that for the extra 5%, so 225 So then we're looking at 675 That's how much $6,750 of buying power that those seniors would lose if inflation kept going at the rates it was going in those years. That's, that's insane. And sorry if my math isn't exactly correct, and it isn't exactly perfect, but that is a very 
easy way to think about it, which is they lose a lot of buying power. They can't go out and buy that extra steak that they may want or may even need if for some reason they're on dietary restrictions. So, you know, it's a great concept in the theory of it alone. But when you really have to apply it, and then we have situations like this where inflation is rampant, then it actually is going to hurt our seniors very badly if they have a rate that is locked and is not affected by inflation. But let's give the author a little bit more time to flesh out his argument. Quote, the CBO data show that in 1979, the average American over the age of 65 had a household income after taxes and transfers of 43000 All dollar figures are inflation adjusted to 2019. Seniors' incomes averaged 23% below those of working age Americans. Retiree households were more than twice as likely to live in the poorest fifth of the overall population as to live in the richest fifth. The 1970s stereotypes of retirees eating cat food, if not accurate, at least reflected some semblance of seniors' realities. Four decades later, the picture is radically different. By 2019, average income for over 65 households, so anyone over 65, had grown to 97,300, a 126% increase. For non-elderly households, average income rose from 58,792 to 104,297, just 77% higher than 1979. The income gap between seniors and working-age Americans had shrunk in 2019 from 23% to just 7%. Today, seniors are nearly twice as likely to live in the richest income quintile as to live in the poorest quintile, end quote. And this all does sound very well and good. When you hear this off the top of your head, you're like, okay, okay, they're doing great right now. And these, this data does show that there has been progress, that a lot of these people that are getting to retirement age have been able to, they were working class, they were middle class during the 70s, maybe the 80s. They were able to save some of the money from this great period of American economic growth. But don't be fooled by this data. While it is promising, it doesn't show how seniors have been affected by hyperinflation, which is my key issue here. I think that's a very important component. And the the author's being honest because this is the data that he has at his fingertips. But we can't use the 2019 information and data and statistics in order to make a decision in 2023. And obviously there are different cases if we have lots of different data over years and we have the up-to-date information, we can compare them, then of course we could use that data. But we cannot have this data that he's suggesting be the sole reason that you say it's okay to freeze Social Security benefits and lock them from being infected by inflation. Because we need to understand how the hyperinflation has affected these seniors before their benefits, or I take that back, 
before we adjust their benefits. Because if they're worse off over the last three years, then at the end of the day, we would have to reconsider, should we actually lock in that rate that they're getting and make sure that it doesn't change due to inflation? So that's why I've taken a little bit of an issue with this author's position on the matter. And like I said, I don't think he's trying to be disingenuous. I think that it's a solution, and I think that it could work. But there are flaws in it that I really want to point out. And to be honest, I'm not trying to say it's a terrible solution. It won't work at all. I am trying to say that there may have to be some every three, two, five years, we have an adjustment period where we bring it back in line with inflation. So seniors will at least long term not be as greatly affected by having their benefits locked at one rate. And, you know, that does kind of defeat the purpose, but at least it's not year over year where we're increasing the benefits. It's every few years. And then it also forces Congress to come together and say, okay, yes, we are going to allow Social Security to continue in the form that it's in. You would have to put a provision in there. But that means that it doesn't become a crisis issue that politicians can wave around and say, oh, yes, I'm going to solve Social Security. It's okay. We have this vote in every five years. We're going to have to do it. It's no longer a crisis issue. We're actively addressing it every single time it comes up. If we need to do reforms, then that's the time. So I think that's a, a middle ground from what this author is saying. And I'm not saying it's the ultimate answer either, because there's another solution that comes up here in the next article that I think is actually a, a pretty good one. It also has its issues, but it has lots of merits as well. So the author's overall criticism that we have missed the opportunities to address this issue really does hold true. Politicians are only willing to tackle and address the problems when it's a crisis and then get credit for solving or averting said crisis. And that's what I was talking about when I said the political incentives are all messed up earlier because they get points for, oh, we solved the Social Security crisis. We were trying to help you. They get political points for actions like that and rhetoric like that rather than doing the responsible thing, not being flashy, not going out and saying, oh, yeah, we we worked uh, with Social Security. We did some reforms and just being humble about it. No. It has to be a big showboat. It has to be a big convention, like this next article is going to talk about, where everybody that's involved can get credit for it. Speaking of that next article, let's jump to it. From the American Prospect, the smart bipartisan plan to shore up Social Security. By 2035, the trust fund that Social Security relies on for many of its benefits will run out. But can there be a bipartisan solution? My last antics, the last article where I was ranting against politicians would suggest no. But to be honest, if both sides were able to get a political win or were willing to take the flag for it, yes, there, there could be a bipartisan solution here. And that's what this author is proposing. There are always two perspectives when it comes to this debate. The Democrats offer the more taxation, the more funding programs side of the argument, and the Republicans often want to cut back on the benefits of Social Security. And both sides get demonized for their opinions. So you have 
Republicans calling the Democrats. Oh, they just want, they're tax monsters. They're tax demons. They want to tax us, tax us, tax us. And then you have the Democrats saying, well, they're demonizing, not demonizing, they are being mean to old people. They want to cut the benefits in Social Security. They're evil for wanting to take away your grandmother's lunch. So there's examples that come from both sides, and both sides get attacked by the other because nobody wants to be taxed more, and nobody wants grandma to go without a meal. So there's no really winning in this situation, at least from the way that these two parties have gone about it historically, trying to address the Social Security issue. But there is a new bill that has been brought up, which is the Trust Act. Quote, the Trust Act is basically a redox of the Browsley-Simpson Commission from 2010, which President Obama set up to find ways to cut the deficit. As the Commission for a Responsible Federal Budget explains, it would, quote, set up rescue committees for lawmakers to seek bipartisan agreement on changes to extend the solvency of and to otherwise improve trust fund programs. It ensures that the Trust Act, quote, would not make any direct changes to Social Security or Medicare, though, quote, cost reductions could be on the table, end quote. So this is one way that the politicians, I mean, the author rightly points this out, that both sides can take blame for any changes that come to Social Security. And also, it's a cutesy way for them to say, no, no, we're, we're just addressing the trust funds. We're not actually directly addressing Social Security. So it's kind of a way for politicians to worm their way out of taking direct responsibility while also spreading the blame if people want to blame them for Social Security problems. And to be honest, it's a very clever political move, in my opinion. I think it's a little bit shrewd. Do I think that I necessarily want it to happen this way? No. I'd rather both sides come out, be honest, and work together and just take the flack. But it's never that simple. Politics is a very complicated game. It's all about your image, especially when you're trying to get reelected here in the next two years. So I get why they're doing it this way. And like I said, I think it is very, very clever. So there are two solutions that the author likes to address for the coming problem of Social Security. One, which I am not in agreement with, is remove the payroll tax limit of 650000 So normally, you have a payroll tax that goes towards Social Security. You and your employer pay it. And it, up until $160,000, that they'll take money out of your paycheck to pay for Social Security. But once you go beyond $160,000 overall for the year, then they will no longer tax it. So the author wants to remove that cap and say, no, if you make a uh, billion dollars a year, we're still going to tax you at the same percentage rate that we're taxing Jibby Jim Joe down at the store who's getting taxed on his 45000 income per year. You know, this would no doubt cause an uproar. People would not be happy with this, especially the, well, not actually, I take that back, most of the rich people. But as I mentioned in my podcast the other day, talking about the Davos letter from the millionaires to the ultra-rich, they would actually be okay with getting taxed more. So maybe some ultra-rich people wouldn't hate on the fact that they have to pay a little bit more because maybe they'll use Social Security or maybe they're getting too close to that retirement age and they wouldn't mind putting a little bit extra away. I don't necessarily know for sure, 
but it definitely would not go over well with the general populace. People don't like money being taken from them, especially the ones who are making above $160,000 per year because they feel like, they probably feel like, I can't speak for any of them because I definitely don't make that much money, that they're working extremely hard for their money and that any extra taxation is theft. But I think there could be less flack if the rate at which the income over $160,000 was a little bit lower. So rather than the rate being 6.2, which is the normal rate paid by the employee of the company, the employer pays the other 6.2, then maybe it could be an even 4%. And, you know, that's just a thought. Because I don't necessarily like just removing the cap altogether because I feel like at some point people should be able to feel the benefits, more of the benefits of the hard work that they're putting in. And I don't want the government encroaching and taxing too much. But if I had to sit down at a table and I had to give up something but still gain something, I would say maybe we could take it to 4%. It's a little bit higher than half, but it doesn't necessarily satiate that need on the other side either. But like I said, just a thought. The second solution is a more interesting one, in my opinion. Quote, so what about the investment idea? Joseph Zelibos Ryog, sorry if I pronounce his name wrong, reports in Sephomore that Cassidy and King are proposing that the federal government create a new fund separate from the Social Security Trust Fund in which borrowed money would be invested in stocks, which typically grant a much higher rate of return than treasury bonds. In other words, they would harness a small amount of American capital income, returns from stocks, debt, real estate, and so on, which reliably constitutes about 30% of the national income on behalf of the public, end quote. And the author goes on to state that the S&P has a historical return of somewhere around 9%, and that the treasury bonds are only bringing in about 3%. So look at that. You could possibly 3x your money. And I say to the author, yes, that sounds like a great idea. Sounds like a great proposal. But remember, in order to get that extra 6% of returns, if not a little bit higher some years, you're taking on more risk. People could lose, the government could lose money year over year in this fund. And then how are they going to be able to pay some of those benefits when the trust fund is running low on its own money? Are they going to siphon off some of the funds? Well, then they have less money in there to create or realize the gains of 6% the next year. So there are lots of back and forth. There are lots of flaws to this. I do think it's a very interesting idea, and it's a very American idea. Yeah, let's just throw some of our American tax dollars into the stock market and see where it goes, baby. Ride it to the moon. I love it. It, It's really throwing a, a different spin on the way that certain people would think about it. But I do think it could also be dangerous. With the government throwing in public funds, not even just public funds, just government funds into the stock market, in theory, in theory alone, they really could bully the market with uh, if their fund is large enough. Like some pension funds for cops, firefighters, they're able to shop around and try to get the best deal and you know really work the brokers that are working on Wall Street. And the government already has connections with people on Wall Street, so they have to build those connections deeper. 
And I just, I don't know necessarily if I like that aspect of the government being directly involved in Wall Street in the way that they're investing funds. And I know government officials do it, but I mean the government itself. Now, if there are other funds that already exist and I am extremely ignorant, please fill me in down there. But I I think it's a little bit dangerous, if I'm going to be honest. But I do like the idea I understand that if the people that maybe there's an option that people opt into this, that they want to basically have a 401k IRA uh, that is government backed. And then they can say, yeah, throw my funds, throw some of my Social Security funds into this uh, firm or sorry, this fund that is on the stock market. Yeah, I'm definitely okay with the risk. But other people aren't going to be okay with the risk. They're going to want that return from the Treasury bill, and they're going to stick to that because they want their guaranteed money rather than the possibility of the stock market crashing, like in 2008, and then not being able to pay for their food because their Social Security benefits from either fund is gone. But, you know, I think the author's getting at something very interesting here, and Cassidy and King are also getting at something interesting here, and it could be a further discussion which probably means it won't go anywhere because it's Washington, but it could be a further discussion. Our last article comes from The Daily Signal. This is a crisis. Why Americans should care about China's shrinking population. So China has had its hands in many different pies and has many different economic ties all across the world. So with that, we should be trying to decouple from them because they're so vested everywhere. But we also need to really pay attention while we're doing that to what's happening there, especially with this, quote, coming crisis. Quote, this is a crisis that has been decades in the making. Really, since at least the 1990s, China has known that its population is going to decline. For decades, it has had this draconian policy, this population control policy. For most of the time in it, people were limited to one child only. And so in many cases, they would find people if they had more than one child. In some cases, authorities at the local level would even sterilize people, force them to have abortions. And so they're controlling, they've been controlling it this entire time. So with a declining population, China will have less unskilled workers, laborers, which is one of the backbones of their economy. They'll have less future soldiers, which is a necessity if they want to invade Taiwan. So you can see how this is a a problem. China has been the one of the lead manufacturers. And the reason they have been the one of the lead manufacturers is because they have a lot of unskilled labor. A lot of their population wasn't necessarily as educated as around the world, so they weren't demanding for higher wages. They couldn't earn higher wages. But as the population is starting to shrink, the education rates are starting to go up in China, and they have a lot more tech-heavy jobs, which are not unskilled jobs where you're sitting there being a widget in a factory. No, you have to have a little bit of engineering skill, a little bit of smarts. You have to be maybe a little bit more delicate when making microchips, these sort of things the price for manufacturing things in China is going up. And with a population that is decreasing, especially when it comes to invading Taiwan, they're probably looking at it right now saying, well, over the next 30 years, we're actually going to lose a large majority of our fighting forces that it would be the right age and male 
So we need to invade now if we're going to invade. And I don't mean today, and I don't necessarily mean this year, but in this brief demographic window, which is probably until about 2030, if it doesn't happen before that, I, I would be very surprised. But, you know, I am not a prophet. I am not an oracle. I don't know for sure. I'm just going off of information I've heard about the subject and a sneaking suspicion in my gut. I actually made a bet with somebody that they would invade before 2032 for $10. I think it was two years ago. So if you're listening, you know who you are. I highly doubt you're listening. But get ready to give me my $10 is what I'm saying. (laughs) So for those of you who are China hawks, maybe you're enjoying or rejoicing at this news. But I remind you that the world economy is greatly entangled with China, so their downfall affects more than just them. Quote, I would say in China, because of what affects the Chinese economy now affects the world. China used to say about America, when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. You could definitely say that about China and the Chinese economy. And so what we have to do now is we are going to increasingly have insignificant working-age people to take care of the elderly people in China. Now we're already seeing a significant decrease in the number of unskilled workers in China, both because of their improving education levels and developing economy, but also because of the decreasing population, end quote. So... I know I've been talking about a lot of negatives, but one benefit that we can take from this is that it will be an excellent case study in live time of what happens to a country that's experiencing population decline in the modern era. We've seen it happen in Britain, a lot of European countries, Japan, but now we get to see it happening live time in the modern technological era, just like our population in the U.S. is starting to decline. And you may say, well, we actually have replacement rate, but that is because of immigration. We actually, when it comes to birth rate, we are birthing less children in the United States, here in the United States, than are dying. The only reason that we stay at about replacement rate or a little bit above is because of immigration. So if immigration slows down, we would also start to have a declining population. So we can look at China and we can say, okay, what's happening here? What are the effects? Does it cause public unrest? What policy changes did they make that we could possibly address? Which ones shouldn't we make? And, you know, China is one of our greatest strategic adversaries on the world stage. And personally, I believe with the declining population, they will try to seize on this moment to invade Taiwan. And it scares me when I think about it, especially with how Biden has been making moves against their chip industry they're really looking to taiwan saying oh we we're going to need those fabs we're going to need those high-end tech facilities where they build some of the best microchips in the world here soon and let's be clear they wouldn't necessarily know how to use it or at least to the best effect like the taiwanese would but it's one of those strategic elements that they're probably thinking about and i think that it's a very we need to pay very close attention to what's going on in china going forward and what's going on in that region and that's why i brought this article to your attention but let's get away from all the the negative stuff let's jump into the daily delight this one comes from upworthy dog sits and waits and shares the sweetest relationship with the garbage collector her best friend Some dogs have an oppositional relationship to many people that approach their territory. 
but that's not Lily. Quote, she has made a second best pal, the garbage collector, David. Every Friday for the past two years, Lily the Labrador waits in the yard for David, and when he passes by, he stops to offer her treats and pet and play with her. End quote. So not everyone gives Lily the attention that she deserves, or at least she believes she deserves, but David is always prepared for the little pupper. Quote, David and Lily have a unique relationship. Chattery claims that while Lily shows affection to everyone, including those who aren't dog lovers, she can tell that David and Lily have a closer bond, although it undoubtedly has something to do with the candies in his pocket, end quote. So if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos or read any of today's article, there will be a link in the description below, uh, the like and subscribe button. And since I said at the beginning that we're probably going to be on a lot of different platforms by the time this goes out in a day or so, uh, if you can leave a review, never said that one before, it's kind of new to me. I'm going to try to make this a little bit slicker here at the end because I'm used to saying leave a like or subscribe on YouTube. So leave a review on wherever you get your podcast. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.